Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. You can turn with me, if you have a copy of God's Word in tow, to 1 Corinthians 11. And we are going to finish our study of this passage of Scripture, particularly verses 17 to 34. This is something that we've been looking at for several weeks. And um, this is the fourth and final message on this section before we pivot to the whole topic of spiritual gifts, which we'll pick up in a couple of Sundays, which is the next major division in the letter in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Paul has a lot of important instruction for us on how we think about spiritual gifts. But uh, just by way of review, in part one uh, of this message uh, series on the Lord's table, we trace the Lord's table through the scriptures. We actually did this um, by starting all the way back at Israel's exodus from Egypt, and we considered the Passover, and we saw this pattern emerge from within the Passover meal and some of those details that repeated itself, has repeated itself, and has been escalated, of course, throughout God's word, that God's wrath passes over his people, not because of any inherent worthiness or goodness in themselves, but by his gracious covering through a substitutionary sacrifice. And from there, we traced it up into the Gospels. We saw how the Lord's table um, came to be through the Lord's, t- became the Lord's table through the final Passover, and it found its fullest significance in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We discussed how Jesus retooled the Passover with his disciples so that going forward, it would teach them and us how to understand his death uh, and, and what its significance is. And as God's people then rehearse that um, that uh, story of their salvation through the Lord's table. And uh, just as the Israelites did with the Passover meal, God's decisive act of deliverance uh, is brought forward in a fresh and a new way to our hearts, into the present. And, uh, and so from there, we traced it into, we showed the importance of the Lord's table for marking out the church's present gathering. Um, we asked the question, what constitutes, what composes a local church and and turns it into just more than a group of individual believers, and what makes it a church, uh, one body? And the answer, we said, is this proper participation in the Lord's table. Very, very important. The Lord's table is something the entire local church participates in and does as one body. And so through our participation in the Lord's table, we reaffirm that through Christ's death, we are all sharers in his life, his eternal life, and that we are also um, sharers in one another, that we belong to one another in the body of Christ, his church. And then we, we ended that first message by tracing the Lord's table all the way into the future, into glory. And we saw how the Lord's table prepares us for the glories of heaven. It doesn't just look back at the cross, and it doesn't just focus our attention in the present, but it also, um, we are receiving, when we come to the Lord's table, a a foretaste, a a preliminary um, experience of the future when, when we will be with Christ and we will enjoy his fellowship forever and ever. So that was kind of part one. In part two, then we considered Paul's rebuke, and we got into the text itself in verses 17 to 22, hit Paul's rebuke for the Corinthians' conduct around the Lord's table, which was really um, a a huge problem. In verses 17 to 22, um, Paul issues a stinging rebuke to them, and um, because they were carrying all the worldly divisions between rich and poor into the church and the way that they were relating to one another around this 
this ordinance and even in their, their practice of the Lord's table that was so out of step with God's design that he says um, in verse uh, uh, 20, uh, excuse me, yeah, verse 20, therefore, when you eat together, it is not even to eat the Lord's Supper. He says, whatever this is, it is not the Lord's Supper and that their gatherings were more hurtful than helpful. And we pointed out that that this was part of, the Lord's table was typically celebrated as part of a communal meal, as a whole church. And these rich members in the congregation who would have supplied the food for such a meal were basically um, ignoring the limitations and challenges of their less fortunate brothers and sisters, those who were poor, those who were slaves. And these wealthy members would gather and they would eat up all the food and, uh, and the, in their own kind of rich cliques and, and they would eat and drink without restraint. And by the time their poor brethren showed up, the food was gone. And what was meant to be uh, uniting the church ended up dividing the church. And Paul says, this is, this is wrong. This is, you are despising, verse 22, the church of God and shaming those who have nothing They were dragging all that superficial, carnal distinctions that the world makes between rich and poor, between slave and free. They were dragging that into God's household in the church. And Paul says that is contrary to what Christ has taught us because we are one body. And then last Sunday, we focused in part three on Paul's reminder of the significance of the Lord's table. And we saw that in verses 23 to 26. And we saw that one of the important things that the Lord's Supper signifies or heralds is Jesus' death in the place of sinners. I think that's something that we are probably most familiar with. Jesus said when he gave this ordinance to his disciples in the upper room, this is my body, he says, which is for you. He was pierced through for our transgressions, Isaiah says. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. He says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have all gone our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a great substitutionary sacrifice. And we are to remember that when we come to the Lord's table. He says, do this in remembrance of me. The cup, we said, is the new covenant. Jesus says, is the new covenant in my blood. And he points out that the shedding of his blood that was about to take place at the cross would forever establish and ratify the new covenant, making its, its, um, its promises sure. When he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, we became the righteousness of God in him. That great exchange took place. And every time we come to the Lord's table as the church, we retell this work that our Savior accomplished on that cross to purchase life for our sin-sick souls. It's a wonderful reminder of what Christ has done for us in the past. But we said last Sunday, and we pointed out, that there is also a more to the Lord's table than just a rehearsal, a reminder of what Christ has done for us in the past. And um, too often we emphasize that and forget the present tense of the Lord's table. And so we unpacked a little bit of that. We, underst- we, we needed to remind ourselves that uh, when we come to the Lord's table as the church, it is a present communion with the risen Christ and by implication, his people. Paul asked two really important um, rhetorical questions in chapter 10 and verse 16. He says, um, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? 
And the obvious answer to those two questions is it is. It is both of those things. The cup of blessing which we bless is a sharing in the blood of Christ, and the bread that we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. And Paul is emphasizing what we are communing with, not simply the fact that we are communing together, but um, he's pointing to the the what it is that we are communing with. It's not just that we're in the same space sharing the Lord's table together, even though that's absolutely true and an important part of what's happening. We said that the fellowship through the Lord's table establishes some kind of relationship with the blood and body of Christ himself. And we pointed out how the grammar of and, and things of this uh, state, these statements by Paul in chapter 10 uh, support understanding this term sharing to mean the common possession and enjoyment of something that we have in common. And um, so what is it that we share? What is it that we enjoy together? Well, for those who've placed their faith in Christ, we share the body and the blood of Christ. And if Paul's talking about a present sharing at the Lord's table with the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and Christ is no longer dead or dying, well, by implication then, our sharing at the Lord's table is the common possession and enjoyment of the living and risen Christ now. Our communion must be with the present benefits purchased by Christ's broken and risen body, his shed blood, and the new covenant ratified through it. The point being is that the bread and the cup are symbols. They don't turn into anything. They are not changed, but they are signs which signify present participation and present sharing and enjoyment in the present benefits procured by Christ's body and blood. So at the Lord's table, there is a mutual giving and receiving grounded in the gospel. The triune God gives and does and delights and is satisfied toward us. And on our part, we respond and do and delight and are satisfied toward God. There is a spiritual communion that happens. Sharing in the blood and body of Christ at the Lord's table means spiritual nourishment is brought to us. It is brought to our hearts. It is a present participation in the present benefits of Christ's death for those who partake properly. That's a lot of Ps. To put it simply, the Lord's Supper is a means of God's grace to us. If, if we've put our faith in Christ, we already have union and communion with Christ. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 9. But the Lord's Supper then must be viewed as a means to water and feed what we already possess. It doesn't convert or doesn't work apart from the faith of the communicant, but in when received with the spirit of faith, it sanctifies and strengthens the justified sinner. How does it work then? How, how, does that, how does that which resides in heaven come to us on earth into our weary souls here? And the answer, we said, is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit ushers into our hearts all the spiritual benefits of Christ's body and blood symbolized by the bread and the cup. And, in, and the consequence of that is it nourishes our souls and strengthens our faith. And, it, and it, we didn't get into it and... But I was having a conversation after church last Sunday, and I was just pointing out, you see the Spirit is the mediator who brings Christ's benefits to his people. You see that all throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 1, where all the, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
Well, how does that get to us? It's through the Holy Spirit. Um, And so just like prayer is a means of grace and the ministry of the Word of God is a means of grace, the Lord's table is a means of God's grace, and it is brought to us through the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of where we have been. That's what we looked at last Sunday uh, and the previous Sundays. But I want us to consider this morning verses 27 to 34. Having, Paul is having laid out his rebuke for their conduct in 17 to 22 and uh, having reminded us of the significance of the Lord's table in verses 23 to 26. Uh, now in verses um, 27 to 34, he's going to recalibrate the Corinthians' practice around the Lord's table. This is where he takes what they have, uh, what he said, and applies it, and applies it. He says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange When I come, we're going to work through the text this morning by asking and answering two questions, just two simple questions. First, and the first question is this Who should and shouldn't participate in the Lord's table? Who should and should not participate in the Lord's table? And uh, as Paul rounds the corner here in verse 27 and following, he is beginning to make application from what he's said in the previous section. In basically saying, in light of what I've communicated thus far, here are some necessary consequences that follow. And the first being this, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And this statement, as we read it, um, we're, some of us are very familiar with it, but, but it sparks an important question in the back of our minds. Who are these people Who are these people who are sharing in the Lord's table or partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner? Well, um, that's why we need to look at this. One obvious group of people who might participate in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner would be unbelievers, those who have not professed faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's, you know, pretty common sense, I guess, when you consider the Lord's table heralds Christ's giving of his body in the place of sinners, his securing new covenant blessing for his people through his shed blood, then clearly only a true Christian, a true believer should participate in the Lord's table. You say, well, why is that? Well, because all the benefits of Christ's sacrifice have only been applied to those who have placed their faith in Christ. The unbeliever hasn't done that yet. So to participate in the Lord's table then, if you come to the Lord's table and you partake of the elements, you are affirming that I believe that Jesus Christ, that the word became flesh, gave his body and shed his blood for me. That's what you're affirming or reaffirming. And if that's not true of you, 
then you have no claim on Christ. You have no claim on the forgiveness of sins that he offers. You, you have no claim on the peace which God grants through the gospel. You have no claim on the assurance and the hope and the fellowship that he bestows. Those are things that are given to those who have come to him on the basis of faith. If you haven't yet put your trust in Christ, then you don't belong to him and you don't belong to his church. An unbeliever doesn't trust Christ and they're not spiritually bound together with his people. That's just a reality. Now, it does not mean that unbelievers aren't welcome in the church gatherings. They are. Or they're not welcome in our homes or into our lives. They absolutely are. They're welcome to participate in much of what happens here in a public worship service to enjoy time together with us in our homes, and we should befriend them and serve unbelievers and love them as fellow heirs of the grace of life. I mean, this is, this is what it means to love others. But at the same time, unbelievers should perceive by the way that we take the Lord's table seriously, and our love, they should perceive by that and our love for each other that unless they repent and believe, They will never experience the blessing and the unity that God's people enjoy on account of our faith in Christ. And so when we remind the gathered church, the people in the congregation at the Lord's table that this ordinance is only for Christians, for believers, it reminds non-Christians that they need Jesus Christ. And every time those elements pass them by, it should serve as an open invitation to them. Look to Christ. Come to him. Turn from your rebellion. Turn from your sin and humble yourself and abandon your so-called good works, which the scripture says are nothing more than filthy rags anyway before a holy God, and receive Christ's righteousness as a garment. Clothe yourself with him as your only hope. And when you've done that and you've made that testimony public in the waters of baptism, then come and recline at the Lord's table with his people. So one obvious group who should not participate in the Lord's table are those who have not professed faith in Christ. But there's another group who shouldn't participate in the Lord's table, and that is those who are uh, those who have professed faith in Christ but are under church discipline. Those who have professed faith in Christ but are under formal church discipline. We got a little window into this back in chapter 5 where Paul reprimands the Corinthians for maintaining fellowship with people who claimed Christ but who lived like unbelievers. Um, You look at verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, and not even to eat with such a one. And then he goes on to add, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, he says, that's not my concern. God judges them. He says, remove the wicked man from among yourself. So as believers, we are not to maintain fellowship, which clearly includes the Lord's Supper, among other things. We are not to maintain fellowship with those who take the name of Christ on their lips, but undermine that profession of faith by flagrant unrepentant sin. And if the church has properly followed 
the discipline and restoration process that has been given to us in Matthew chapter 18, and they have and it's come to the point where someone has been put out of the church and they are not to have fellowship at the Lord's table with God's people in that church or any church if other churches are being faithful to the task as well. If they do, if they do participate in the Lord's table under discipline, just as an unbeliever, Paul warns, they shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now the guilt he has in mind here in verse 27 is most likely refers to that of the crime itself. It's as simple and straightforward as it sounds. Those who carry on at the Lord's table, as the Corinthians were doing, despising and humiliating the church by their rebellious conduct are profaning the meal, but more important, more seriously, they are profaning the host of the meal, who is God himself. And as such, they are placing themselves under the same liability as those responsible for Christ's death in the first place. Those men who mocked the Lord and spit on him and beat him and, and um, tortured him. In, uh, and those who called for his crucifixion. To be guilty of the body and blood means to be liable for his death. It is a serious sin. A serious warning. Which is why Paul says in verse 28, a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Because as verse 29 says, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And that divine judgment had begun in their midst. We see it in verses 30 to 32. He says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, which is a euphemism for death. But if we judged ourselves rightly, he said, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. What's Paul saying here? Most likely, he's speaking with prophetic insight, uniquely given to him by the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit has revealed to him a divine cause and effect between what would otherwise be seen as kind of unrelated events of people, uh, one, one person sick and another person dying, and, and then their behavior around the Lord's table. But he goes on to point out that this is a temporal judgment, verse 32. It's fatherly discipline by our Lord for their disobedience. It is not divine condemnation. Now, I think we need to be mindful not to, read into, not to read Paul's experience as an apostle writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit directly into our present experience, which is very different. The most we can say is that this is a real possibility in the church. But I don't think we can, nor should we, be running around telling people definitively, oh, the reason so-and-so is sick well, the reason so-and-so died is because they're being disciplined by the Lord for their participation in the table in an unworthy manner. To, to say that um, definitively would be to go beyond the boundaries of God's revealed will. We can't know that for sure. But Paul's words here are meant to alert us to the seriousness of coming in an unworthy manner to the table and he alerts us to the fact that this is a real possibility. 
And that should cause us to, those of us who profess faith in Christ to pause and to reflect on our hearts and lives before we come to the Lord's table, which is obvious. So then I ask the question, and we've kind of seen who shouldn't participate in the Lord's table. <laughs> who should? Well, put simply, all those who have made a public profession of faith in Christ and who remain in good standing in the church. If you're not under discipline and you've professed faith in Christ, then the table is open for you. You say, well, I've struggled with temptation this week, and I wasn't kind in my words toward my wife or to my kids in so many different contexts, or I've been fighting and sometimes losing this battle with, pure, with purity in my heart and in my mind and my behavior. I've, I've wrestled with resentment toward my neighbor, toward my coworker, toward my extended family. I haven't had this kind of self-control that God knows uh, that I, you know, I know before the Lord I should have with things I eat or drink or what I watch or how I use my time and, you know, fill in the blank with all the things that we wrestle with. Does that mean I shouldn't participate in the Lord's table? And I want to clarify that our everyday struggles of repenting against sin in our lives, that Romans 7 dynamic, the, the struggles of the flesh are not Paul's primary concern here as he calls for self-examination. We are to examine ourselves, but Paul's primary concern here, contextually, is with the relationship dynamics in the church, not the relative purity of the participant. And um, I get that from verse 29. I think that's clarified for us in verse 29. For it says, He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, and this is the conditional kind of thing, if he does not judge the body rightly. What does that mean? What does it mean to judge the body rightly? Well, uh, sometimes it's understood as shorthand for the body and the blood of Christ. It's understood as uh, Paul would seem to be implying that the church isn't seriously reflecting on the importance of our Lord's death. But uh, I, I don't think that's exactly what he's talking about because everywhere he's talking about the body and blood of Christ, what does he say? the body of Christ, and the blood of Christ. He never just says the body as a shorthand for, the other two, for, the, for that full statement. And he says it over and over and over again in these verses. And so I think that when he talks about the body, I don't think that's exactly what he's, I don't think that's shorthand for the, the body and blood of Christ. I think a better way to understand this verse is in connection with what Paul has already said back in chapter 10 in verse 17, where the body... And the t at the table refers to those who eat of the bread, the one bread, the church. The church are themselves that body, that one body. If you look back at chapter 10, verse 17, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The church is, a is a, as a body is a metaphor that Paul uses all over the place in his writings. I mean, that is one of the most common, one of the most common metaphors to describe the church. And he does it in chapter 10, and he does it in chapter 12, and I don't think there's any reason not to see him weaving that thread through chapter 11. So his point, Paul is warning them, and he's warning us against failing to discern, which is really what the word means, 
there's an interplay of this word judge and discern. There's all these different cognates of, of discern and judge through these verses. But here it has the idea of discerning or distinguish as distinct and different. He says we are, uh, we are to distinguish as distinct and different the body, meaning the church, that, that the one body of Christ is seated at the Lord's table when we come to the table. So we're not just some random group of, of uh, socially and ethnically diverse people. We are spiritually one body in Christ and therefore must relate to one another in a manner worthy of the gospel that's called us and united us into fellowship with each other. The emphasis, I believe, on verse 29 on this judgment is on those who do not discern as distinct and different the unique nature of the body of Christ. And that fits with the context of 17 to 22 and even back into chapter 10 where they were fellowshipping at the table of demons. So the questions you need to ask yourself as we come to the Lord's table, first and foremost, are you at peace with your brothers and sisters in the church? Are you relating to one another with Christ-like love? Are you being forbearing in your judgments of each other, and especially in those non-essentials, those things which are not cut and dry in the scriptures, where people can have differing opinions and differing convictions? Romans 14, back in chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 8, those kinds of things. These are the kinds of questions we need to be asking ourselves before coming to the Lord's table. And if there's division, and if there's conflict, and if there's a judgmental spirit, those things need to be repented of. They need to be reconciled. You need to pursue your brothers and sisters and reconcile them if there's a break in fellowship. And the whole, that way the whole church can come together and participate the way we're supposed to as one body. To partake of the bread and the cup, which heralds our union with Christ and our unity with each other, and to simultaneously nurse broken fellowship with other Christians in the body is to, as Paul says here, invite the Lord's fatherly discipline into our lives, which I don't think anybody wants. Now, it bears repeating that Paul doesn't expect us to examine ourselves and stay away. That is not the thrust of verse 28. He expects us to examine ourselves, remedy any, any issues that might come to bear in our minds, and to participate. If you look at verse 28, but a man must examine himself. So examination is important. Examination is necessary. But in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it's implied that you are participating, not staying away. We are to examine ourselves. And yes, there is an internal component of confessing and turning away from sin, but none of us confesses and turns away sin, away from our sin perfectly or completely. We all have things in our lives that we don't acknowledge or we don't see or that we're, we're struggling with. The Romans 7 dynamic is always there. I don't do the things that I want to do, and I want to do the things that I, uh, I, don't, I shouldn't want to do. And right, that, that, That's always there. That's part of living the Christian life between the poles, between here and glory. No, we come to the Lord's table 
examining ourselves, confessing sin, turning away from it, reconciling any disagreements that may be lingering in the body, and then we come as humble and needy sinners to receive fresh grace to fight the good fight of faith. That's why we do this. We come to the table to fellowship with the risen Christ and his people through the Holy Spirit and to have our parched souls watered and refreshed in the knowledge that Christ came into the world not to save perfect righteous people, but who? Sinners, among whom I am foremost. We belong to him and he belongs to us. And that work which he began in us, Philippians 1 says, he will perfect, bring to completion until that final day. As sure as God has promised, he will do it. So that's who should and shouldn't participate. I want us to have the right perspective on that. Because I think, I think, and myself included, I've had a a very introspective morbidly introspective view of the Lord's table. And that is not the intention of these verses. I don't think that is Paul's main thrust. He is concerned about relational dynamics in the church above, you know, the the constant everyday struggles of our sin that we all wrestle with. That leads to the second question. We asked and answered the question, who should and shouldn't participate? Secondly, how should the church celebrate the Lord's tape, Supper? How should, we, how should the church celebrate the Lord's Supper? And there's kind of five kind of bullet points on this one. Well, first, and this is obvious, we should come to the Lord's table reverently. We should come to the Lord's table reverently. This table, as we said earlier, is what marks out the gathering of the church. It, what's makes, it's what makes the local church a church and not just a random assortment of of individual believers. Therefore, I think it's important that we make sure that we are truly born again when we come to the Lord's table, and at the same time that we are walking in step with God's revealed will. I mean, do you see the fruits of repentance in your life? If you do, praise the Lord. But we need to be reverent about that. We can't just... Be like, well, I always go to the Lord's table. It doesn't matter what's going on in my life. No, we need to come reverently, respectfully. And yes, there is a, there's an element of self-examination, and there's, this is a great opportunity as we come to the Lord's table for you to confess any known sin, to, uh, to search through your, your life and to acknowledge those things to the Lord and confess them. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so we can come with confidence, and reverence is, uh, is important. But I think this reverence also has a practical implication for the importance of believers' baptisms, which is where faith in Christ goes public. Remember, we said earlier that baptism is where the church says, this one belongs to Jesus. When properly carried out, It joins one to the many in the church. The Lord's table then is very, as the the other kind of, uh, as the other, not kind of, as the other ordinance which God has given to his church, it relates to baptism because the Lord's Supper is where that initial public testimony is reaffirmed. It joins the many to the one, the body. You first need to come into the body of Christ, before you can legitimately celebrate the fellowship of the body. 
You need to join the family before you sit down at the family meal. And if you have not been baptized as a believer or you aren't working through that process in the local church, then you probably shouldn't be partaking of the Lord's table. Because you cannot reaffirm and proclaim through the Lord's table what you haven't affirmed and professed in the waters of baptism. So they're connected. And in light of what the table signifies and the seriousness of partaking of it in an unworthy manner, we should be very circumspect to ensure we aren't eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves by ignoring one of the most fundamental aspects of discipleship, which is to make that discipleship known publicly in baptism. Secondly, so we need to come to the Lord's table reverently. Secondly, we need to come to the Lord's table regularly. We need to come regularly. The Lord doesn't require sinless perfection to approach his table. As we said, uh, Michael Horton, in his um, comprehensive discipleship uh, manual, said it's not, the Lord's table is not a reward for the strong, but a means of grace for the weak. So unless you're nursing some sinful disagreement with another Christian in the church or you're under formal church discipline, you should be partaking of the Lord's table. Um, likewise, kind of, if we zoom out to the corporate level, the church should make the Lord's table a frequent part of our gathering each month. And traditionally, we've done that once a month, but in teaching through this, it has become our conviction as leaders that we should celebrate the Lord's table more regularly. I mean, that's just a practical implication of my study over the last several weeks. Perhaps twice a month in a typical four-Sunday month, maybe three times a month in those Sundays, uh, when th- those months where there's five Sundays, but it should be frequent. If it is what we have said it is, and I believe that it is, then it's something we should do more frequently, not less. Third, when we come around the Lord's table, we do so corporately. So reverently, regularly, third is corporately. The Lord's table is something the entire church does and does as one, as one. It is not something that individuals do or a small group in a, in, within a church might do or a family would do. It's something that the whole church does. It's not a private meal between friends. It is a corporate commemoration and fellowship with Christ himself and with each other. This language of sharing in the blood and body of Christ refers to our sharing, our our possession and enjoyment of the provisions and benefits of the new covenant, ratified by Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. So when when we come to the Lord's table, which we will in just a few moments, we do so as the church. That table becomes a fellowship meal where we reaffirm that through Christ's death, we are all sharers in his eternal life and that we are bound to each other as his spiritual body in the church. Fourth, we come to the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, we should come joyfully, joyfully. As we partake of the bread and the cup, we are enjoying fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, through his Spirit. 
He who promised to never leave us nor forsake us, who promised to be with us as the Great Commission reminds us, to be with us always, even to the end of the age, is really but spiritually present with us on the basis of faith. So through our participation in the Lord's table, you and I are reminded that our sins have been forgiven. Right? We, we, are, we have been washed, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, clean. And we belong to Christ and he belongs to us. So we are receiving at the table a foretaste of God's goodness and being helped along the way as weary pilgrims in a foreign land. Just a wonderful reminder when we come to the Lord's table. So we do should bring joy to our hearts just as much as it should cause us to reflect and to be reverent and to be circumspect. Fifth, and finally, when we come to the Lord's table, we should come hopefully. Hopefully. This table reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we are eagerly waiting for the Savior our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. I mean, that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're looking ahead to. And as certain as you and I receive with our hand and taste with our mouth the bread and the cup, so certainly will we one day enjoy the fellowship and the communion of God himself in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what you need to remind yourself of as we come to the table. When the scripture says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, there will no longer be any death, mourning, crying, or pain. All those first things, Revelation says, will have passed away. That's what we're looking forward to. And I don't know about you, I need to be reminded of that more often, not less. So the church should come to the Lord's table how should we do that? We should do that reverently. We should do that regularly, both um, you know, with our own participation, whenever the church is gathering, and the church should do it regularly. Corporately, we come together as one body. We do that with joy in our hearts, knowing that we are communing with Christ and reminded of all the blessings and, and ministry that's happening to us even now. And we do so with hope, hopefully, knowing, not like, I hope it works out, but a sure confidence that what he has promised, he will complete. This is how we come around the Lord's table. This has been an incredibly helpful study for me. Uh, sometimes when you preach through things, you're like, yep, uh-huh, yep, mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, but this has been incredibly helpful for me, and I hope it has been for you. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.